0: Before you go, we want to let you know about a special offer for one of our most popular self-paced online courses. Led by Thomas, The Art of Attunement includes seven modules of recorded teachings and guided meditations, plus a special bonus package of attunement practices to help heal the illusion of separation. This program can benefit healers, therapists, and anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the relational dynamics that connect us and an increased capacity for presence. Enroll by March 21st and get 50% off the regular price for the course. To learn more, visit artofattunementcourse.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit Collectivetraumasummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Jack Cornfield, PhD, holds a doctorate in clinical psychology has trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma, and is a founding teacher of the Insight Meditation Society and the Spirit Rock Center. He is one of the key teachers to introduce mindfulness practice to the West. Jack has taught meditation internationally since 1974. His 14 books include, A Path with Heart, A Lamp in the Darkness, after the ecstasy, the laundry, the wise heart, and no time like the present, finding freedom, love, and joy right where you are.
1: A very warm welcome back to the Collective Trauma Online Summit. My name is Thomas Hübel, and I have the big honor to sit here with Czech Cornfield. So first of all, a very warm welcome, Czech. I'm happy you join us, and I'm happy you will share your wisdom with us, so... Happy to have you here Czech. and uh, yeah thank
2: you thank you and i I very much appreciate your work thomas so it's a it's a privilege to also be in conversation with
1: you mm, thank you Czech. I remember you know before before I went to my full year meditation retreat, I already read your book and uh and and uh, deeply appreciated it then so you were You were a part of my inspiration at that time when I was still coming out of, you know, uh, within my medical studies, and so it. So I I remember having your book, and uh, and it's it it became an inspiration on my path. And that's also right away my my question to you. So you know, you were deeply immersed, or you are deeply immersed in, in 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 the contemplative Eastern traditions. And you are also immersed in, in Western psychology or psychotherapy. And, and I would love to understand like in your own life path, how do, did these two streams come together? And by, why do you think it's important for like a practitioner to be informed by both worlds or both competencies or you know deal with our integration process and with our transcendence process? Maybe you can. Yeah,
2: without, sure, without um, getting philosophical about it, I'll be personal and practical. I grew up in a family where there was uh, a lot of trauma. My father was brilliant and uh, mentally ill in some ways, paranoid at times, and often outbursts of rage and violence, and particularly uh, violent toward my mother as a wife batterer. You know, he would beat her or throw her down the stairs or things like that. It was a little, as a little child, you can't do anything, but it's um, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. So uh, years later, after going to a good Ivy League university and also preparing to go to medical school, I didn't get as far as you. Uh, I encountered Eastern psychology from a great professor who'd come up to Dartmouth from, from Harvard to help start a department on Asian studies. And he talked about the Buddhist teachings of suffering, that life has suffering. I started to nod. He said it has its causes, hatred, greed, fear, ignorance. We see them. And there's a path to an end to it, both individually and collectively. And he began to talk about and I sat for it. I said, this is the medicine that I need. And I became really interested in this. Uh, went it was during the Vietnam, American Vietnam War. I went in the Peace Corps rather than going in the military and worked on village medical teams in Southeast Asia along the Mekong River Valley in Thailand. And Looked for a teacher, found a great master named Ajahn Chah uh, in the forests in that area on the border of Laos, and had an amazing inner training. All the things that I didn't get in a fine Western education, which were the, was the training of, how do I deal with my anger? I didn't even think I had any. I didn't want to be like my father. It turned out I was filled with my own suppressed rage. How do I deal with uh, not only my trauma, but longing and love and loneliness. How do I deal with a wise relationship with one another? How do I work with emotions and the stories I tell? All those were part of the training as was the deep trainings in compassion and forgiveness. And underneath it all, a perspective of becoming the wise, my teacher called it the one who knows the witnessing consciousness of all of it. And I returned from monastery and dis- disrobed I was in a monk in the west for a little bit got into an intimate relationship and all that stuff re-arose um, mm. not in the same way but there's nothing like a close intimate relationship to um, stir up anything there that mm. uh, uh, we have uncooked in ourselves and so I could feel my clinging and neediness and fear and then rage and all those things that I learned about in the time in meditation very deeply. Um, But then they subsided as I got deeply quiet and concentrated and open to a much more spiritual transpersonal consciousness. But the seeds were all there. Um, and all it took was a sweet little love relationship, as they say. And um, they got they all arose. And I said, whoa, I need some help with this. And so I began graduate school in psychology and got in therapy. And basically, Western psychology had a lot of the tools, the same tools of mindful attention and compassion done in partnership. Because a lot of the traumas that we have and that I had are actually created in relationship and they don't rearise except in relationship and therefore they also get healed in relationship. And so I learned those skills to bring the very same mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and so forth. How do we do that when we're sitting with another person attending to being attended to? And then of course, I learned it in a much more important way in the collective healing, which I can talk about as well as an activist and more.
1: Yeah, I would. I so, would so you
2: need it. So you need both. Um, I, I can't recommend. And in those days, people would make fun of me because it was 50, 45, 50 years ago. And I'm, you know, one of the early um, mindfulness teachers in the West from certainly convert Buddhism anyway. Um, and uh I was in therapy and talk about it and all these other people poo-poo, oh gosh, Zen will do it all, you just sit or my Vajrayana practice, go talk to these great lamas and ha ha ha, now I can tell you the names of their, all of their their therapists, you know, right. <laughs> they, they all found, it, <laughs> found that they needed someone else to talk to and work with because the fact is that as a spiritual teacher, as in many other vocations, you can easily get isolated and you can also easily bypass or not have the support you need. And so for people who have a deep uh, spiritual life to have some support for also being with another person and working in partnership, and it doesn't have to be psychotherapy. There are things like insight dialogue, for example, which is this beautiful blend of Eastern and Western psychology in a way of working out loud with a teacher, with a colleague. that can do a lot of that. But the relational piece turns out to be for almost everyone critical.
1: Yeah, I, I deeply agree with what you said. And I think I want to just underline that uh, I think it's very important. And um, you mentioned also your, your uh, activist side. So maybe you can share a little bit with us. W- what's the work that you did there on the collective level?
2: Well, I actually want to talk about trauma straight up. And I know that that's one of your great gifts and and uh, offerings to the world, but I'm going to kind of summarize some of the essence of trauma work for people. And that gives the context for the story I'm about to tell, or a couple of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma arises when we have some Form of emergency, if you will, um, bodily or emotional, or psychic in some fashion, where we feel a threat from the world, where there's violence or pain or you know surgery or illness or um, trauma of omission, people doing things to us, traumas of uh, traumas of commission, traumas of omission, where we're left alone in terrible circumstances. There's a whole uh, beautiful compendium of the kinds of trauma and uh, leaders like Peter Levine, who's one of our brilliant trauma uh, therapists, have outlined all the different kinds of trauma, pre-verbal trauma and, and, uh, and so forth. But once there's been some kind of uh, affront or pain or fright or, or, or um, worse than that, some difficulty that we've gone through, sometimes quite terrible. Um, Then it gets locked into our body. We go on to alarm and we go into fight, flight, or freeze. Um, And our whole nervous system goes into survival. It turns out that often, once we've survived the trauma, all of you listening have survived your traumas, that those things can still remain locked in your body and your psyche and your heart and mind unless they're deliberately attended to or released they don't always but they can and often they can and fairly often just because of the industry that i'm a part of the spiritual industry lots of people who go to spiritual practice go because of their wounds as i did and their trauma Uh, and therefore there's all the more compelling reason for those who have a meditative or spiritual interest to kind of look inside and see well what is that trauma so then how does it get healed because if you don't heal it your body gets sicker and carries it you become more frightened in the world um, and more rigid in your emotions and psyche and your mind can go into fears and paranoia or um, aggression or or it can go into a kind of split where you're not really alive here because it's too painful or too scary to be in a relationship or with the things around you or a person. And so you check out, all those are the kind of defensive moves. To heal trauma then, it requires at a minimum several different dimensions. One dimension is that it's carried in the body. And so often, We need to attend to the body and let the movement and the sound and the scream and all the things that were held in, let them come out in some fashion or other. Uh, It's woven into our body and nervous system. The second dimension is all the emotions that it has, which if it's grave trauma, can be terror and screams and rage and grief and all the complex, painful human emotions, loneliness and fear. And then there are the stories associated with it, the mental component, how we make meaning of it or don't, or what we allow ourselves to remember, what we tell to others. Now, a couple of very specific stories, rather than staying abstract about it. i worked on retreats with returning vets, combat vets, and did this with Luis Rodriguez, one of our great Latino poets. He was the poet laureate of Los Angeles a couple of years ago, and Maledo Somme, a West African shaman, medicine man who has a couple of PhDs on the side, and Michael Mead, our greatest living mythologist, and so forth. And uh, part of the problem for returning combat vets is that what they suffered they don't feel that they can talk about because the trauma and the pain is too much. The words are this, I can't tell you what I saw and I can't tell you what I had to do. And the second one is even worse than the first because it's the Irish call it a geish. It's a weight on the soul. And I remember, you know, this vet standing up and saying, I'm manning a checkpoint in, Iraq or wherever it is. And it's twilight and a group of Iraqis are coming to this place to try to come in and I've got to check them all. And I say, pause where you are. You know, we need to pat you down. There've been too many suicide bombs and so forth. Um, And this one older guy just keeps marching right toward me. I say, no, no, halt in Arabic. I shout, he keeps coming. Finally, I shoot him. And the women in the group start shrieking and yelling. And then my translator says in my ear, they're saying, the old man was deaf. And the the vet who was there just started to weep, carrying that death in his heart. So what we learned to do was to make a safe and ritual space, um, to use art and poetry and um, movement and martial arts and tai chi and various things like that, But most importantly, we invited the vets to tell their story. And because they were combat vets, they felt that there was a safe enough place. And they said, we can't tell these stories to our families. It it, it would traumatize them. It would be too terrible what we've seen. So we can't tell them to anybody. And they carried them in their hearts. We not only invited them to tell the stories that they never told stories you're not supposed to tell, so to speak, um, but then we invited them to write them, to write a poem or a story or dictate them if they couldn't write. And as they did, of course, there was tremendous catharsis and emotion and tears and rage and memories and all these things getting released emotionally and physically. And then at the end, we invited in a special ritual their families and the people closest to them to to come. And the combat vets were in front of the room or like on a little stage. And they were invited to stand up and read a piece that of things that they'd never told that would free them, what they needed to say. And they each did, people wept each time. And the most important thing is that we had a ritual each time someone spoke that says, we hear you, we understand what you had to do. We welcome you home. We welcome you back. And that movement of witnessing body, heart and mind by the community and then saying, you are welcome back as part of us uh, was an enormously healing moment. An enormously healing time, and I think about all these vets who get dis- disgorged by a bus on a street corner after they you know, they've left their uniform, carrying all that baggage. You know, there's a huge high suicide rate, and nobody ever hears their story. So another related story, and I think the stories are as illustrative as any of the theory that I can tell. Um, we also work with young men coming from getting out of gangs in the inner city in Oakland and Los Angeles and Chicago and so forth. And I remember one event, and this really speaks to the importance of a container of enough safety or ritual container. We're there, these these, um, colleagues that I teach with the same group or some subset, and there's these guys and they're sitting and their hoods are up and, you know, their hats are on backward and we're going to work with them. And Luis reads a poem, kind of profound, amazing poem about it, life on the streets and heroin and whatever. And, you know, Michael's going to tell a story. And, and they just, they look, they say, listen, you guys, you got a poem. you got a story, man. We're on the streets. People got nine millimeters shooting at us. There's this undeclared war in the streets. Uh, You've got to give us something better than that. So we say, okay, we can't start this way. And we light a candle, a single candle, place it on a table in the front of the room and say, would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed, shot or killed. And some of these kids come back and their hands are full of stones. No young person should know that many dead people really Um, And then we said, put them by the candle and simply say the name. This is for RJ and this is for Tito and this is for home girl. And this is, and pretty soon there's a pile of stones around this one naked candle and they sit back down and the hoods come off and the hats come off and the eyes open like, okay, this is a place where we can tell the truth. And in telling the truth, not only were the stories shared, but then there were myths about warriors coming back, you know, from ancient cultures and what they had to do to cleanse their hearts and come back again. There were, there was songs that we did together. We did some African and Mayan songs and things from these ancient cultures that they were a part of to feel that they were not alone in this, but that There were generations of people who had survived and those who'd been warriors and survived Mm -hmm. and then to come back and make peace. So this is some of the collective healing. Uh, Now, one little more piece to say, some of it is very much done in an individual basis. Uh, But no matter what, if there's profound trauma, those multiple dimensions of the body and the emotions and heart and the story, and the witnessing, all are a part of, the, of a more thorough trauma healing. How does that sound to you, Thomas? Does Maybe. it match your experience?
1: And first of all, very much, very much. And, and, and it's amazing to feel the transmission of, you know, the, the story makes it very, very alive and transmits the work that you do or did so i think that that yes and and also the content that you shared matches that very much i wanted to ask you since you know i i deeply believe that the interdependence of an individual and in the group is part of a, the principle of healing so if you maybe share in your own experience of doing so many workshops and groups what 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 do you see as the power of you know, people coming together to form the, that kind of ritualized spaces for healing. What's the power of the we or the, the, the kind of collective container for healing, for individual and collective healing? So, and, and, and what do you find uh, supports the power of the healing space? What are the elements that are that really work well?
2: Well, that's it's kind of a leading question since it's, you know, you've written and said it's important for you know decades now. So I know your point of view on it. What's important to recognize is that in almost every great spiritual tradition, leaving aside kind of individualists like Thomas Hubel, um, but most of the wise spiritual people, you are wise, but in a different way, um, they say that what's critical is satsang, or Sangha or community or a minion in the Jewish tradition or whenever two or more are gathered in his name or her name, or you know um, the Sufis who come out of nowhere and put up a tent and have an amazing mystical convening of the parliament of the hearts and the spirits and then disappear the tent and brush the desert clean. So you wouldn't even know that it happened except that it did because the seeds are there in your heart and your imagination. So Mm. almost every great spiritual tradition knows that we can't do it alone. That because part of the revelation is that the whole notion of separateness is a constructed fiction that we are one another's bond, we are one another's glory, that we are a life itself. And that sense of separation dissolves in whether you call it mystical ways or even in the deepest, profound, therapeutic ways and so forth. So it becomes important, it becomes critical to be witnessed. More than that, there's a a reason that people do even solitary meditation together a lot. You know, the Tibetan monasteries and the, you know, the Egyptian Christian mystics going back 2000 years ago and. And all of that um, mm. lived in community. So we, we can't do it alone. Uh, we actually need, and we draw on the lineages of the, of the generations before that have learned this. And it turns out for a whole society, whether it's South African Truth and Reconciliation or, or, or Rwanda things, to the extent that it's helped and it's only partially helped because the trauma is so great and the structure of the societies are still so traumatized um, that you can do something, but there there are a lot of things left to be done that aren't healed. But nevertheless, there is a kind of collective healing that has to happen. Let me tell a different story. Mm. I also worked for 40 years together or more with my colleague and heart friend Stanislav Groff. Mm-hmm. Um, MD, PhD from, originally from Czechoslovakia, who was the last legitimate LSD researcher in the Western world at Johns Hopkins before everything got shut down in the early 70s. And I got to know him at that period when he was moving from Johns Hopkins out to the West Coast to Esalen and not being able to work with the profound medicine of LSD and psilocybin and so forth that's now opening up again, as we can see from the writings of Michael Pollan and the research at NYU and Johns Hopkins and UCLA and all these other places. Um, He developed together with his wife, Christina, holotropic breath work, which is a way of doing powerful breath work for two hours as hard and fast as you can with very activating music. And we, well, we we did many, many of these groups around the world, in Asia and Europe and North America and so forth. And um, sometimes it'd be a room with two or 300 people breathing insanely hard uh, with someone sitting with them. So they had a partner, they pair off. So they were always tended and people who facilitated who knew even more about it. And in that room, if you entered it uh, with a, loud music playing a kind of great swelling music of all different kinds and drums and so forth. You know, 30 of the people would be dying and, you know, 28 of them would be in, in the birth canal and being born. Some would be in a past life regression. Some of them would have been turned into birds or whales or wolves or animals. Um, you know, some would just be working childhood and their parents Every dimension of consciousness opened up as it does from LSD uh, in really powerful ways. And the whole art of the holotropic breathwork was to allow whatever needed to open complete freedom and space. As long as you lay there on your back, you couldn't get up and interact because it would be too dangerous for you. But on your mat, kick, pound, scream, die, be born, you know, turn into an eagle, have a pet, anything. And it was like walking into Dante's divine Mm -hmm. comedy. There was Mm -hmm. the hell realms and the heaven realms and purgatorio and everything in between. Mm -hmm. And it was profoundly healing for people, sometimes over a succession of times. But here's the part that I think is relevant to the question that you've begun to pose. My work with that, beside breathing and having my own experiences, I I did it once with my twin brother who came to visit. I said, let's do it on the mat together. (laughs) We breathe. And sure enough, um, both of us were back in the womb, not talking to each other, our eyes closed, so forth. What it was like being tight in there with another person and getting born again. And so all that came up. But anyway, um, after those sessions, I would lead meditations to ground people to help them feel and integrate the emotions that they just released to help them sense their body and how it could again come connected to this human earthly realm because they've been in every other realm past and future and so forth um, how to hold it all with compassion so that there was a way in which the tenderness of deep compassion that we all carry our measure of tears we all have a measure of suffering as as existing beings as humans how do we hold this Um, teaching those practices and grounding and integrating them so that they had the the skills if you will of mindful loving awareness of mindfulness and of compassion itself and the steadiness of embodiment to digest or integrate what happened. and That's a little example of kind of the interweaving of the individual and the collective.
1: Yeah, very strong. Like, I also love the the coherence that builds. I'm sure that there was a lot of coherence in the room in the different experiences, but being together in a, in a similar experience that is very powerful, like this mutually supportive, even if yes. it doesn't look like, yeah. And um, so, looking at uh, what you shared so far you know we could say you know there's there's always like some kind of criticism that some people say listen many spiritual practitioners are just avoiding the real difficulties of life you know they are just trying to get away into a good experience but they don't they can't face and change real hard stuff in in society and then there's the other one that says you know many activists are trying to solve their own trauma by helping the world or not looking at their own stuff and bypassing it through bypassing also their own spiritual practice maybe through their work in the world and so when we when we look at these two poles and then we see okay how can we what's a way to first of all to relate to this when when you hear that and secondly what's a how can we be, find guidance on our path, not to tap into one of those traps, but to, or maybe tap into it and have some guidance to get out of it again, like how to avoid that bypassing or become aware that that bypassing is happening. Can you maybe speak to that? Because that's often you know, the argument between the grounded world and the spiritual world and uh, why we are where we are. grounded world and the spiritual world What an
2: unfortunate language, (laughs) (laughs) as if the world wasn't sacred, you know, that's some notion that the spiritual world is someplace else up in the sky or in India or some other place. So I will talk about it. I don't know whether I'm going to tell a story that's not exactly related, but it's important to tell it. And then I'll talk about spiritual bypass and this, you know, or activism.
1: I love your Um, story.
2: (laughs) <laughs> well, this is an ancient story. It's not mine. It's one of the parables, if you will, of Kisa Gautami, who was a woman in the time of the Buddha, back 2,600 years and in, going to India. Most of the early Buddhist texts are actually simply recordings of um, dialogue. Of people would come to the Buddha and say, we hear you're a great teacher. Can I ask you a question or can you help me? And that was true when I lived in the forest monastery and Ajan Chah would sit in, under these great trees on a little wooden bench and people would come. And there was no division between what was spiritual and what was psychological and what was collective. Somebody would come and say, I've just been drafted. I'm going to be a soldier. Can you give me a blessing? Can you give advice? Somebody else would say, my daughter just died. Help me. Um, somebody else would say, I've been meditating and my body starts to dissolve into light. Can you give me guidance? And someone else would say, you know, my brother tried to steal the land that our parents left us. Um, and somebody else would. And none of it was said, said to me, okay, that's not spiritual. What we do is follow the breath or some nonsense like that. All of it was amenable to the medicine of the Dharma which is that they're suffering and it has its causes, clinging, greed, hatred, ignorance. And then there's, there are these tools of compassion, forgiveness, wakefulness, um, shifting of identity that allows you to free yourself from those in a way that doesn't deny that they happened, but that holds them in a completely different and wiser way. So Kisargottami comes to the Buddha because first her husband had died and then she had these two children. Um, and one of, their, one of the boys died, uh, one of the children. You know, there was so much child death before there were antibiotics and things like that. People would have eight or 10 children and half of them would die. Um, and there was one remaining child, like a little girl, and then she, died. she got sick and died. And Kisa Gautami carried her weeping and said, you're a great master, bring her back to life. Can you do this? And the Buddha said, yes, I will do this for you. Just a really remarkable thing to say. Uh, But first you must do something for me. You must bring me pepper seed, some spice, uh, very, very common kind of pepper um, from the village from a compound, a family compound um, where no one has died. So she went into the village thinking, oh my, he's gonna return my daughter to life. And she goes to one compound, people lived in their houses, multiple generations, grandparents, parents, and said, do you have any, you know, these pepper seeds? Of course we have, Um, I, I, I need it. Oh, by the way, has anyone here died? Oh yes, our grandfather and then, Two of the children, one stillborn, and she went from house to house to house. They all had the pepper. And not a single compound could say no one has died here. And she came back and she wept and she looked at the Buddha and said, I see, I see death happens. And it happens to every family. And it happens to all all of us. Um, So this is a a famous parable, and it's a parable of understanding, but it's also a parable of how we learn from one another of the collective healing um, in some profound way. I lived in the one of the monasteries with a man with a monk who became a very famous, he became the head of Cambodian Buddhism and nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize a number of times. His name was um, Gosananda, Maha And uh, he spoke 12 languages and because was extraordinary. Mostly he was just a sweet, kind human being, kind of an ocean of love. And we were in the monasteries when the Khmer Rouge had taken over Cambodia and killed a quarter of the population, a kind of genocide. 2 million or more people killed in the killing fields. And um, because he wasn't there, all 19 members of his family plus um, his, were killed, his temple burned, the village destroyed. So we went to the refugee camps. There were hundreds of thousands of refugees who'd fled into Thailand, taken care of by the UNHCR. Mahakosananda. Said, let's see if we can set up a temple for these people, and got permission from the UN. Just a tin roof and a platform and an altar with a Buddha image on it, as you would have in a temple, in the center of ground at some point. And then we went through the camp, ringing a big gong to open it. But the Khmer Rouge underground, which was there in the camp, said anybody who goes when you get back to Cambodia, uh, you'll be killed. So we didn't know if anyone would come. And the bells rung through the camp, and out of the you know 80,000 people in that camp, 25,000 people poured into the center square, huge number, and all sat. And then here's this one monk, Mahagosananda, sitting up there, looking out, and it was the faces, of trauma of a grandmother with two surviving grandchildren out of eight you know or an uncle and a couple of little boys with him or a parent who'd lost their partner in their village and you could just see the visible trauma on the, the shell shock to use a war metaphor and i thought all right what will mahagosananda say to these people and he put his hands together gazed at them and he began to chant in Khmer or Cambodian and in Sanskrit Pali this verse one of the very first verses of the Buddhist text that goes hatred never ceases by hatred but by love alone is healed this is the ancient and eternal law and he chanted it in Cambodian and in Pali again and again. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And pretty soon people started to chant it with him. They hadn't heard these prayers for some years because the temples were burned and they would have been killed reciting them. And tears started to stream down their faces. and he continued to recite them. And it was as if he spoke a truth that was even bigger than their sorrows. That this is the ancient eternal law that hatred never ends by hatred. And after that, for 15 years, he led these refugees back to their villages once the war died down some. And he said, you can't go back in a bus. You can't go back in the back of a truck or something like that. He said, you have to reclaim your land and your place with your heart and your, your step. So he knew the embodied physicalness of healing. And so at the front of a line of a thousand refugees, some of them barefoot, he'd be ringing a bell, chanting hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. And they would walk through the killing fields or by the minefields and so forth back for a hundred miles to their village chanting the chant of loving kindness till they reclaim the land and then somehow reclaim their right to be on it in a different way. So the whole notion that spiritual practice doesn't have anything to do with activism is a fiction. Um, And as you point out, there are the two different ways that we can fall off the middle path and we all do. One is that you become so focused on your individual meditation, and then you use it as a kind of spiritual bypass, say. And that's really common because so many traumatized people are drawn to meditation for healing. And then they have experiences of rising above the pain of transcendence of great love and so forth without actually dealing with it. And it's still there in their body or it can get activated as mine was. So there's that, the bypass and easy to do for a while. And because we all, as I do, have the one of our defenses is a defense of um, denial or moving away from things that are too painful. And it serves us. It's not all bad. All these defenses have a good purpose, as you know. On the other hand, there are people who get riled. I'll never let this happen again. And they become activists. We've had generations of burned out activists come to our retreats, because what was fueling them was not what supported Mahagosananda in his work. But it was bitterness and anger, and unresolved trauma. And I know working in refugee camps, as I have, that half the people who work there are people who had tremendous trauma themselves. And they feel like, okay, now I'm with my people. Um, with the other traumatized people, but they haven't necessarily found the inner skills to, to heal it so well. They, they feel better because they can respond and make something happen and help people. Hallelujah. It's fantastic. But in fact, as a human being, uh, we are both, we have a sacred, you know, dimension of who we really are, which is consciousness that's born into these bodies, a timeless consciousness that contains and is everything and we have this mystery of our individual incarnation in which we have to pay our taxes and drive on the correct side of the street um and anybody who says i'm really spiritual and i don't have to bother with that see what happens the next time you don't stop at a red light you know you realize that you have to wed together the personal and the collective and the human incarnation on this earth with all the other creatures you're woven with the every breath you take is the breath of the starlings and the breath of the earthworms in the soil we're all breathing interbreathing it together um that's how it works that's what life is so we have all of this and and in the long term and you can go one way or another you get a activist phase in your life or time when you go alone into the woods for a year or you do something, all of that's good. Um, what it can bring you back to if you have a wise tradition or teacher or understanding is that they're not separate. And that um, yes, as I said, you know, here in the US where I mostly teach, although I taught all around, all around the world, we're Americans, we know how to misuse anything so we can misuse meditation. We can misuse activism, um, and that's really because the misuse is is the clinging, clinging to, to transcend some kind of false transcendence, where there's this visionary, beautiful opening. But you know, what about how you put on your your shoes and care for the children in your in your neighborhood, you know, or in your family? Uh, we're also called in different ways, Thomas. Some people are truly called to live in a cave. And sure there might be some denial or some bypass, but I'm thankful for those hermits in the caves that are doing 24 seven prayers for the world. And because I didn't, you know, I grew up in a very well-educated scientific family. And my twin brother was a, Ph.D., professor, scientist, another brother was is an engineer and architect and helped run the city of San Francisco and emergency services, all kinds of things. Another brother was the director of uh, the biggest biotech company in the world. My father is a scientist. So for a while, I didn't believe in all this mystical stuff. You like to use the word mystical. So I'll go with your swing with your language for a little bit. you know, I did, there's a lot I didn't believe in. They talk about the ghosts and spirits in the monastery where I live, you know, because there's a, a great deal of fear in some of those cultures of spirits and ghosts of the dead. And I said, Where are they? Where's the charnel ground? We used to go and sit and make prayers in the charnel. I'm going to sit there alone at night and say, Okay, you show me. Come on, you damn ghosts. Because I was, a, you know, I was full of myself. <laughs> and I was a young <laughs> American, like, Okay come on, this is just okay. I, so I did, there's a lot of things I didn't used to believe in. Now, I pretty much believe in everything. And that's partly because it's all created by consciousness. So of course, it's possible. And so many stories and experiences I've had of being halfway around the world and knowing somebody died. Nobody even told me and there was nothing and they had an accident. It wasn't like they were sick. And I know this and I call you. yeah, yeah, they died. How could that be? How could it be? Mm. It could be only because we are consciousness itself. We're connected in that way. Or I sit with people who are dying and, you know, they say nothing happens. And then, you know, they have a near death experience and they come back for a little bit anyway. Well, what happened? Oh, I floated on my body, there was light, you know, you see anybody, maybe, maybe not, and so forth. You thought you would die, and it's like turning the light switch off, and there's nothing there, but big surprise. And of course, I've had lots of out-of-body experiences and all kinds of other past life experiences. So I used to not believe in anything. Now I pretty much believe in everything. One more story to tell you a different kind, and this has to do with the collective, and then we'll go maybe back more to the individual one of the senior people trained by peter levine in his somatic experience trauma work uh, is an israeli-american a woman um, quite skilled and she's decided to go back to israel and palestine to do help help in some way because a lot of what's happening there and i've done some peace work both in israel and palestine is really the result of generational trauma, the Holocaust, for sure. But it's not just that. It's the million Israelis who came from Russia who were traumatized under the communist regime and became kind of right-wing, paranoid. If you lived in Russia, you'd be paranoid, too, you know, or you should be, et cetera. (laughs) Um, But what's happened, of course, is that with that unhealed trauma, they, not all, but the, those who ha- who are unhealed then are on this a- alarm fight flight or freeze um, where safety is the only channel that matters um, and so they can mistreat the palestinians who have their own generational trauma um, and it's a reenactment of unhealed trauma from one side to the other and the other side back and so forth so i thought okay cool this woman is going to go and do trauma work. Maybe she'll work with the military, you know, maybe she'll work with children. You know who she worked with first? Journalists. And I said, Why did you do that? She said, Because if you're a journalist in a war zone, and honestly, at times, Israel and Palestine, Gaza, they become war zones. Um, and you see missiles, you see people being shot, you see people throwing Molotov cocktails, you see the violence in both directions, you get traumatized. And if you don't have a way to digest or release that trauma, then everything that you write and broadcast after that has the flavor of alarm and trauma and it makes the whole system worse make sense to you? Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so therefore, um, the frontline people like the journalists need to have a way to digest and come back to an equilibrium where they can not only experience and see the things that are traumatic, but also have a sense that they're bigger than that trauma and invite people into a wiser perspective. Hmm. And this is where the individual work becomes absolutely critical. So now we're going to shift to a different octave or a different level. Um, The deepest understanding that comes in healing trauma goes beyond the body and the emotions and the words, all of which need to be respected to the freedom and the recognition, not as a bypass, but as a reality that who you are is not your trauma that who you are is so much more than your trauma. Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic said, I could see the secret beauty behind the eyes of every human being, that that sacred light that was born in, you know, the child of the spirit that was born into every one of these bodies and that will leave it, and that's who you are. That's who we are, is consciousness. And my teacher, Ajahn Chah, talked about it. He used the non-dual language of becoming the, the knowing, the one who knows the witness to it all with great compassion, with with mindful, loving awareness to see the, the dance of life, the praise and blame and gain and loss and the seasons of the Tao, to tend them, to plant beautiful seeds, to water what we want to happen, because that's also true and to remember that it's so much bigger than our ideas and our small identity and who we think we are and how it should be, that who we are actually is the consciousness itself. And knowing this, not as some nice idea that you read in a spiritual book or here even, but having the profound experience that, this body isn't who you are, that your emotions is not, are not who, what you are. God knows you're not your thoughts. I, at least I hope for your own benefit, you don't believe them all, that who you are is consciousness itself. Manifesting in this remarkable way is both the universal and the personal incarnate experience. And that's what liberates. But it liberates not in order to remove yourself from the world, but to see the sacred shining in every leaf and dewdrop. Said When the eyes and the heart are open, the, the leaves and the trees become like pages in the holy books, that everything is imbued with a sense of the sacred because that's what it is. And what we are is love, loving awareness, love. The first gesture when a child is born is to hold them with love unless there's some terrible trauma happening. And at the end of life, as somebody's departing and leaving, you hold their hand, you know, and you're there with them. What matters at the end? Almost nothing except love. And in between, we get to love and do our dance.
1: That's very beautiful. It leaves a lot of silence. <laughs> yeah, very beautiful. In fact, this was a beautiful... Kind of download of uh, what really matters. Uh, Yeah,
2: an outpouring of words. (laughs) Let them wash through you people who are listening. Come back as Thomas invites you to the silence. Yeah. Now what's beautiful about individual meditation, it has different dimensions to it. First is you just really get to pay more attention to your life Because otherwise we can be going along on automatic pilot, disconnected from our bodies, that line from James Joyce, where he wrote, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Um, Somehow on automatic pilot, especially in modern speedy consumer society, where we're checking our devices and keeping our schedules and being busy and so forth, what matters to us can get lost what we care about being able to look in the eyes of the person that you're meeting and listen to the rhythm of their life as they meet you in your office or on the street post pandemic, if you're able or wherever it is, and realize that we're in it together, that there's some deep way of seeing that secret beauty in another. Um, So we need that. And what individual meditation then does is first, It cultivates the capacity of attention so that we can attend to our own bodies, that we can know what we feel. And half of what happens on retreats or in psychotherapy at certain points is people start to get a vocabulary of emotions that they didn't have. What do you feel? I don't feel much. Okay. Well, not feeling much is called numbness. What does that feel like? (laughs) Uh, well i i hate that you call it that okay now you're feeling a little bit of annoyance okay what does that feel like Mm -hmm. you know i wish you'd stop bothering me okay there's wishing okay notice what that feels like and they start to realize oh there's this whole stream of feelings that are there Mm -hmm. so you get to be with your body you get to be with your emotions you start to see all the stories and people who've never done a silent retreat of 10 days or longer You see it and you realize that the mind has no governor on it. And it just, you know, it secretes stories the way the salivary gland secretes saliva. And it's not in your control. There are practices where you can stop your thoughts for a bit, just like you can hold your breath, but they come back. And the point isn't to not have emotions or not have your body breathe or not have your mind secrete thoughts. But it's first to notice what's happening, so become the the loving witness of it all, the loving awareness. And then secondly, to notice where you get entangled and caught, what causes the unnecessary suffering. We have pain, that's part of it. We age, we get sick, that's part of being human. But our fear, our grasping, the stories we tell, our resentments, our anxiety and so forth, as Mark Twain aptly put my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes most of which never happened right we can spin out all these stories and fear is primarily a story of what's yet to come in the moment it might be painful or difficult but fear is almost always connected with some story that we tell about what's going to come next so when you've learned to meditate you're able to, you do what the neuroscientists call expanding the window of tolerance. That's Dr. Dan Siegel's expression, so that you can tolerate your emotions, the level of your grief or sadness for things that you've lost or longing or hope or fear or whatever, that you become comfortable with the whole domain of emotions. You can tolerate physical pain and tingling and itching part of the zen training you sit and you don't move not because not moving is a spiritual thing but because you learn to be bigger than the reactions to everything going on in your body you find a different kind of freedom and then you start to see all the stories the mind tells and all the beliefs and how you identify with all of them and then the big shift in Meditation isn't so much that the things go away, although they can at times, quiet and become silent, and connected, and oneness and transcendence. The big shift is the shift of identity. That you don't take yourself to be that personality. You get amused by it. You don't take yourself to be the trauma. You heal it as you can. You feel compassionate for it. It awakes your tenderness for everybody else that's been traumatized like that. But it's not who you are. And that greater and greater freedom of being the loving awareness itself, that's the liberation more than any state. And I know when I came back to see my teacher, Ajahn Chah, after going and practicing in this Burmese monastery, and I was silent for almost a year and a half except for 15 minutes to speak with a teacher a couple times a week other than that silent um, and I had all these you know dissolved my body into light out of the body floating experiences and you know experience of deep insight and transcendence and I came back and I told him about all this stuff he smiled he said yeah you had quite a retreat I said yeah he looked at me and he said something else to let go of huh And that was his main response. Because he wasn't interested in any particular experience. He was interested in inviting us into the liberated heart that's not based on any kind of experience, however wild or transcendent or tender it might be. But to become the one who knows, the witness, the loving awareness itself.
1: Yeah, that's beautiful. It's beautiful also to feel your transmission as you speak. Uh, beautiful.
2: Let's talk about activism for a minute or 10. <laughs> climate change. I'm on the board of Paul Hawkins, Organization Regeneration, and hopefully you've seen his prior book, Drawdown, how to reverse climate change in one generation, these two not only books, but he's been meeting with the heads of the EU Parliament and Congress and the CEOs of the biggest multinationals and so forth to try to show what's possible. We need to be activists, unless you're going to sit in a cave, which is its own thing. But as you're engaged in the world, because we care about it, our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our community, you know, the porcupines and ravens that live in the trees around us, uh, the sparrows and the grasshoppers and the crickets that liven up our evenings. We're all in this together. Now, there are different ways to approach it. Saying, all right, I want to do something. You can approach it out of fear. You can approach it out of... um, Anger, My good friend Wes Nisker, colleague's group, went to speak with Gary Snyder about this. Gary Snyder is now probably in 90 or so, um, and uh, maybe late 80s. He wrote Earth Household 50 years ago or more uh, as one of our first great environmentalists. I got the Pulitzer Prize as a poet and as an environmentalist. And he said, Gary, rising seas, loss of species, you know, heat domes, um, population destruction. What advice do you have for us now as a, you know, a voice for the climate and the biological world now for half a century? Gary looked back and he said, don't feel guilty. If you try to save it because you're guilty or because you're angry or you're bitter and so forth, those are the very forces that made the problem. If you're going to save it, and even that's kind of hubris, if you're going to help, save it because you love it. It's the only force that's big enough to reverse this. It's like the mothers who pick cars off their children. There's There's a power that we have to draw on, that's love for one another and for this earth um, that will make the the real difference. And anything else becomes an activism that also adds to the polarization of it all. So how do we bring these worlds together? The inner world where you learn to tolerate the 100,000 emotions and thoughts and physical experiences that make up your incarnation, with graciousness with loving awareness with tenderness and appreciation a lot of the meditations I teach these days as people pay attention to body heart and mind I end by saying bow to each one and say thank you thank you to body for caring so much oh thank you to my poor heart all the fears and anxieties and thank you for holding so much I'm okay now And then to your mind, oh, my God, thank you for trying to keep me safe and plan and remember and strategize. I'm actually okay. Thank you. Thank you. But there's a kind of gratitude to all of it, including all of the useful defenses that we have to keep us going. But then if we want to. Make a difference, which I think in our heart, we all do in some fashion, if we get quiet and listen to the voices of the world and the children and the beings and the creatures we share it with. As Chief Seattle said, if all the beasts were gone, men would surely die of great loneliness of spirit. For what happens to the beasts happens to man, he wrote in that, or said in that ancient language. So we need to do it for our heart's sake, and because we are them. But there's a different way to do it. And that's the power of love. And then you start to see there's a book that's coming out this fall. I just did a program to help with it uh, from Jane Goodall, who's you know almost 90 herself, called The Book of Hope with Doug Abrams. And she sees the environmental destruction and the loss of habitat that these beings, that her brothers and sisters, the chimpanzees, the gorillas, these are our people. And she talks about what it means to carry hope. And I know it if I go in a refugee camp they don't want me to come in depressed or or outraged and angry and you know all upset. they actually want somebody to bring a sense of joy and well-being and uplift and say here's what's possible because you come from a thousand generations of survivors we know how to do this we know how to turn things around and now in this time pandemic and global climate change and so forth, we're called upon to do it again, and we can. And the same is true for racism, which I see as the central wound in the American culture, certainly in the US, underlying the economic injustice and underlying education problems and underlying so many things is this long history of racism that's still so present, in which we actually see another, here's this little child born, hey, I'm here. You know, well, I'm sorry, your eyes are the wrong color or your skin is this weird color. You're a lesser person. You don't count. You're not as good as our kind of person. And this goes back to very early primitive wiring in us, that we're in the cave and are the ones in the caves over there going to steal our food, kill us, take our children or wives or whatever. There's a kind of um, very deep survival brain. Fortunately, that's not the only brain we have. We have the, you know, the survival brain. We have the emotional brain. But we also have this spiritual dimension, this capacity to know who we are in a much bigger way. And so... Racism because it's so embedded, not just in American culture, but in its own way everywhere I've been. You know, there's racism in Japan toward the Koreans, toward the Africans. There's racism in India, the lighter, the darker. There's you name it. Um, in Brazil, wherever you go, you can find it, or pretty much. um And colorism, and then caste, which is a whole other. Who's on top? A lot of it's around power, and who gets, you know who gets the resources, how we approach it, the need for collective healing, which first means to honor the suffering. Trauma doesn't get healed unless the grief and the suffering is actually honored. And then it's not an individual honoring, but it's a collective honoring as your work shows. And then in that there's the individual transcendence, forgiveness, uh, compassion, all the different dimensions of consciousness that we can call upon to shift us from being either the victim or the perpetrator. And I'll tell you another story. So I was doing a climate summit and the person I was in dialogue with was Cristina Figuera, who is a Costa Rican diplomat who was the United Nations Special Envoy for Climate Change who helped organize the Rio summit and then pulled together the Paris Climate Accord. Quite a remarkable woman. And she talked about how, as she was working on the Paris Climate Accord, she got more and more depressed and more and more stuck because countries were intransigent and, and grasping and aggressive and didn't want to come together and everybody had their own agenda. And it just felt more and more... Uh, the the power of greed and grasping and hatred and, you know, and, and um, really a, a separation of what's good for me and not what's good for us. And then somebody said, seeing her getting more lost and depressed. There's a place she was in, I think in Geneva or somewhere in Switzerland. There's a place in Southern France called Plum Village with this Vietnamese teacher. whose name is Thich Nhat Hanh. She'd never heard of it. Maybe you should go there for a little retreat. So she went, as she described. And as she listened to Thich Hans' simple and profound teachings that we carry it all within us, I am the child thrown into the sea by the sea pirate and I am the pirate too, I have all this in me. As she listened to the teachings of interdependence, as she learned the tools which meditation brings, of quieting the mind and tending the heart, all its grief with compassion, and how to be present for this human incarnation with its 10,000 joys and sorrows. She said she had a revelation that the problem with the climate change summit in Paris is that it was being divided into perpetrators and victims, who was doing what to whom, and a tremendous amount of blame and resentment and resistance. And when she shifted her consciousness with her meditation and the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, she said, oh, this is a family. These are the different parts of our family. We're brothers and sisters were woven together in this. And her heart somehow got released from that struggle. And she went back and got 195 countries to come together and sign on the Paris Climate Accord. So when we talk about activism, the individual and the collective, they can't be separated. We have to go to the wellspring of wisdom and do some of our own healing work so that our activism actually comes from the place like Mahagosananda that can lead people out of tremendous trauma and suffering backed, at least in the direction of well-being
1: that's amazing it's uh, it's uh, we're coming to the end of our time, but I want to tell you that I really love your like the depth of your sharing and also how you weave stories into the teaching. it's very beautiful it creates a very strong space of the transmission of what you talk about and also you know connected to to real life. So it's very beautiful. I think that was a, a great journey <laughs> that you went on 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 touching on many important aspects of, of collective healing and and I'm very happy that you join us. I feel very deeply nourished and touched and inspired by your sharing. And I'm, I'm sure many people who listen right now too. And, um, and yeah, I want to thank you for, for, your, for this contribution. If there's anything else, anything that you want to leave our listeners with, please go ahead. and uh,
2: Yeah, think- a few simple things. First, uh, and I commend Jane Goodall's Book of Hope. Uh, Everything is possible. Maybe not immediately and maybe not the way you think of it. But the very seeds that you plant and the very seeds that you water are what will create the future. Mm. The human spirit is incredibly creative. We've survived so much. And within you is that child of the spirit, inviolable, that used to tickle and run around and love and see the mystery of life that's still in you it's actually who you are so take time to quiet your mind meditate open your heart walk in the trees listen to the voices of the non-human brothers and sisters as well as those all of those things cultivate loving kindness for those who are interested in the work that i do you can go to jackcornfield.com. Um, and in particular, for those who are interested, Tara Brock, a colleague, and I have a mindfulness meditation teachers, beginning teachers training program. We've got people in 4,000 people in 75 countries around the world. Uh, it's a two year training to learn to teach these inner practices of compassion, mindfulness, inner wisdom. And then be able to embody it in education or schools or clinics or things like that. Check it out if it interests you. And more than anything, I just appreciate your good hearts for listening as you have and being reminded of what you already know. So thank you.
0: Visit CollectorTraumaSummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next Collector Trauma Summit is announced. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.